The Smile That Wins. The conversation in the bar parlor of the Angler's Rest had turned to the subject of the regrettably low standard of morality prevalent among the nobility and landed gentry of Great Britain. Miss Poselthwaite, our erudite barmaid, had brought the matter up by mentioning that in the novelette she was reading, a Viscount had just thrown a family solicitor over a cliff. <laughs> because he had found out his guilty secret, explained Mrs. Miss Poselthwaite, polishing a glass a little severely, for she was a good woman. <laughs> it was his guilty secret this solicitor had found out, so the Viscount threw him over a cliff. I suppose if one did but know that this sort of thing is going on all the time. Mr. Mulliner nodded gravely. So much so, he agreed, that I believe that whenever a family solicitor is found in two or more pieces at the bottom of a cliff, the first thing the big four at Scotland Yard do is make a roundup of all the Viscounts in the neighborhood. Bannons are worse than Viscounts, said the pint of stout vehemently. I was done down by one only last month over the sale of a cow. Earls are worse than baronets, insisted a whiskey sour. I could tell you something about earls. <laughs> How about OBEs, demanded a mild and bitter. If you ask me, OBEs want watching too. <laughs> Mr. Mulliner sighed. The fact is, he said, reluctant though one may be to admit it, the entire British aristocracy is seamed and honeycombed with immorality. I venture to assert that if you took a pin and jabbed it down anywhere in the pages of Deborah's peerage, you would find it piercing the name of someone who was going about the place with a conscience as tender as a sunburned neck. <laughs> if anything were needed to prove my assertion, the story of my nephew, Adrian Mulliner, the detective, would do it. I didn't know you had a nephew who was a detective, said the whiskey sour. Oh, yes, he is retired now, but at one time he was as keen an operator as anyone in the profession. After leaving Oxford and trying his hand at one or two uncongenial tasks, he had found his niche as a member of the firm of Widgery and Boone, investigators of Albemarle Street. And it was during his second year with his old established house that he met and loved Lady Millicent Shipton Bellinger, younger daughter of the fifth Earl of Brangbolton. It was the adventure of the missing Sealyham that brought the young couple together. From the purely professional standpoint, my nephew has never ranked this among his greatest triumphs of ratiocination. But considering what it led to, he might well, I think, be justified in regarding it as the most important case of his career. What happened was that he met the animal straying in the park, deduced from the name and address on its collar, <laughs> that it belonged to Lady Millicent Shipton Bellinger of 18A Upper Brook Street and took it thither at the conclusion of his stroll and restored it. Child's play is the phrase with which, if you happen to allude to it, Adrian Mulliner will always airily dismiss this particular investigation. But Lady Millicent could not have displayed more admiration and enthusiasm had it been the supremest masterpiece of detective work. She fawned on my nephew. She invited him in to tea, consisting of buttered toast, anchovy sandwiches, and two kinds of cake. <laughs> and at the conclusion of the meal, they parted on terms which, even at that early stage of their acquaintance, were somewhat warmer than those of mere friendship. Indeed, it is my belief that the girl fell in love with Adrian as instantaneously as he with her. 
On him it was her radiant blonde beauty that exercised the spell. She, on her side, was fascinated, I, I fancy, not only by the regularity of his features, which, as is the case with all the Mulliners, was considerable, <laughs> but also by the fact that he was dark and thin and wore an air of inscrutable melancholy. <laughs> this, as a matter of fact, was due to the troublesome attacks of dyspepsia from which he had suffered since boyhood. But to the girl, it naturally seemed evidence of a great and romantic soul. Nobody, she felt, could look so grave and sad had he not hidden deeps in him. One can see the thing from her point of view. All her life she had been accustomed to brainless juveniles who eked out their meager eyesight with monocles, and as far as conversation was concerned, were a spent force after they had asked her if she had seen the Academy, or did she think she would prefer a glass of lemonade? The effect on her of a dark, keen-eyed man like Adrian Mulliner, who spoke well and easily of footprints, psychology, and the underworld, <laughs> must have been stupendous. At any rate, their love ripened rapidly. It could not have been two weeks after their first meeting when Adrian, as he was giving her lunch one day at the senior bloodstain, the detectives club in Rupert Street, proposed and was accepted. And for the next 24 hours, when he's safe in saying there was in the whole of London, including the outlying suburban districts, no happier private investigator than he. Next day, however, when he again met Millicent for lunch, he was disturbed to perceive on her beautiful face an emotion which his, his trained eye immediately recognized as anguish. Oh, Adrian, said the girl brokenly, the worst has happened. My father refuses to hear of our marrying. When I told him we were engaged, he said, poo, quite a number of times. <laughs> and added that he had never heard such dashed nonsense in his life. You see, ever since my Uncle Joe's uh, uh, trouble in 1928, Father has had a horror of detectives. I don't think I've met your Uncle Joe. You will have the opportunity, opportunity next year with the usual allowance for good conduct. He should be with us again about July. And there is another thing. Not another. Yes. Do you know Sir Jasper Adelton, OBE? The financier? Father wants me to marry him. Isn't it awful? I have certainly heard more enjoyable bits of news, agreed Adrian. <laughs> this wants a good deal of careful thinking over. The process of thinking over his unfortunate situation had the effect of rendering excessively acute pangs of Adrian's, Adrian Mulliner's dyspepsia. During the past two weeks, the ecstasy of being with Millicent and deducing that she loved him had caused a complete cessation of the attacks. But now they began again, worse than ever. At length, after a sleepless night during which he experienced all the emotions of one who has carelessly swallowed a family of scorpions, <laughs> he sought a specialist. The specialist was one of those keen modern minds who disdain the outward formula of, more conservative mass, of the more conservative mass of the medical profession. He examined Adrian carefully, then sat back in his chair with the tips of his fingers touching. Smile, he said. Eh? said Mulliner. Smile, Mr. Mulliner. Did you say smile? That's it, smile. 
Adrian pointed out, I've just lost the only girl I ever loved. Well, that's fine, said the specialist, who was a bachelor. <laughs> Come on now, if you please, start smiling. Adrian was a little bewildered. Listen, he said, what is all this about smiling? We started, if I recollect, talking about my gastric juices. Now, in some mysterious way, we seem to have got onto the subject of smiles. How do you mean, smile? I never smile. I haven't smiled since the butler tripped over the spaniel and upset the melted butter on my Aunt Elizabeth when I was a boy of 12. <laughs> the specialist nodded. Precisely. And that is why your digestive organs trouble you. Dyspepsia, he proceeded, is now recognized by the progressive element of the profession as purely mental. We do not treat it with drugs and medicines. Happiness is the only cure. Be gay, Mr. Mulliner. Be cheerful. And if you can't do that at any rate, smile. The mere exercise of the risable muscles is in itself beneficial. Go out now and make a point whenever you have a spare moment of smiling. Like this, said Adrian. Wider than that. About this. Better, said the specialist, but uh, still not quite so elastic as one could desire. Naturally, you need practice. We must expect the muscles to work rustily for a while at their unaccustomed task. No doubt things will brighten by and by. He regarded Adrian thoughtfully. Odd, he said. A curious smile, yours, Mr. Mulliner. It reminds me a little of the Mona Lisa. <laughs> It has the same underlying note of the sardonic and the sinister. It virtually amounts to a leer. Somehow it seems to convey the suggestion that you know all. Fortunately, my own life is an open book for all to read, and so I was not discommoded. But I think it would be better if, for the present, you endeavored not to smile at invalids or nervous persons. <laughs> Good morning, Mr. Mulliner. That will be five guineas, precisely. <laughs> On Adrian's face, as he went off that afternoon to perform the duties assigned to him by his firm, there was no smile of any description. He shrank from the ordeal before him. He had been told to guard the wedding presents at a reception in Grosvenor Square, and naturally anything to do with weddings was like a sword through his heart. His face, as he patrolled the room where the gifts were laid out, was drawn and forbidding. Hitherto at these functions, it had always been his pride that nobody could tell that he was a detective. Today, a child could have recognized his trade. He looked like Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> to the gay throng that surged about him, he paid little attention. Usually tense and alert on occasions like this, he now found his mind wandering. He mused sadly on Millicent. And suddenly, the result, no doubt, of these gloomy meditations though a glass of wedding champagne may have contributed its might, there shot through him, starting at about the third button of his neat waistcoat, a pang of dyspepsia so keen that he felt the, pres the pressing necessity of doing something about it immediately. With a violent effort, he contorted his features into a smile. And as he did so, a stout, bluff man of middle age, with a red face and a gray mustache, who had been hovering near one of the tables, turned and saw him. Egad, he muttered, <laughs> paling. 
Sir Sutton Hartley Wesping, Bart, for the red-faced man was he. It had a pretty good afternoon. Like all baronets who attend society wedding receptions, he had been going round the various tables since his arrival, pocketing here a fish slice, there a jeweled egg boiler, until now he had taken about on about all the cargo his tonnage would warrant, <laughs> and was thinking of strolling off to the pawnbrokers in the Euston Road, with whom he did most of his business. At the sight of Adrian's smile, he froze where he stood, <laughs> appalled. We have seen what the specialist thought of Adrian's smile. Even to him, a man of clear and limpid conscience, it had seemed sardonic and sinister. We can picture then the effect it must have had on Sir Sutton Hartley Wesping. At all costs, he felt, he must conciliate this leering man. Swiftly removing from his pockets a diamond necklace, five fish slices, ten cigarette lighters, and a couple of egg boilers, he placed them on the table and came over to Adrian with a nervous little laugh. <laughs> How are you, my dear fellow, he said. Adrian said that he was quite well. And so indeed he was. The specialist's recipe had worked like magic. He was mildly surprised at finding himself so cordially addressed by a man whom he did not remember ever having seen before. But he attributed this to the magnetic charm of his personality. <laughs> That's fine, said the baronet heartily. That's capital. That's splendid. Uh, uh, by the way, I fancied I saw you smile just now. <laughs> yes, said Adrian, I did smile. You see, of course I see. Of course, my dear fellow, you detected the joke I was playing on our good hostess. <laughs> and you were amused because you understood that there is no animus, no arrière-pensée. <laughs> Behind these little practical pleasantries, nothing but good, clean fun at which nobody would have laughed more heartily than herself. And now, what are you doing this weekend, my dear old chap? Would you care to run down to my place in Sussex? Uh, very kind of you, began Adrian, doubtfully. He was not quite sure that he was in the mood for strange weekends. <laughs> Here is my card, then. I shall expect you on Friday. Quite a small party. Lord Brangbolton, Sir Jasper Adelton, and a few more. Just loafing about, you know, in a spot of bridge at night. Splendid capital. See you then on Friday. And carelessly dropping another egg boiler on the table. <laughs> As he passed, Sir Sutton disappeared. Any doubts which Adrian might have entertained as to accepting the baronet's invitation had vanished as he heard the names of his fellow guests. It always interests a fiancé to meet his fiancé's father and his fiancé's prospective fiancé. <laughs> For the first time since Millicent had told him the bad news, Adrian became almost cheerful. If, he felt, this baronet had taken such a tremendous fancy to him at first sight, why, might it not happen that Lord Brangbolton would be equally drawn to him, to the extent, in fact, of overlooking his profession and welcoming him as a son-in-law? He packed on the Friday with what was, to all intents and purposes, a light heart. A fortunate chance at the very outset of his expedition increased Adrian's optimism. It made him feel that fate was fighting on his side. As he walked down the platform of Victoria Station, looking for an empty compartment in the train which was to take him to his destination, he perceived a tall, aristocratic old gentleman being assisted into a first-class carriage by a man of butlerine aspect. And in the latter he recognized the servitor who had admitted him to 18A Upper Brook Street when he visited this house after solving the riddle of the missing celium. 
Obviously, then, the white-haired, dignified passenger could be none other than Lord Brangbolton. And Adrian felt that if on a long train journey he failed to ingratiate himself with the old buster, he had vastly mistaken his amiability and winning fascination of manner. He leaped in accordingly as the train began to move, and the Earl, glancing up from his paper, jerked a thumb at the door. Get out, blast you, he said, full up! As the compartment was empty but for themselves, Adrian made no move to comply with the, the, with the request. Indeed, to alight now, to such an extent had the train gathered speed, would have been impossible. Instead, he spoke cordially. Lord Brangbolton, I believe. Go to hell, said his <laughs> lordship. I fancy we are to be fellow guests at the Wisping Hall this weekend. What of it? I just mentioned it. Oh, said Lord Brangbolton, well, since you're here, how about a little flutter? As is customary with men of his social position, Millicent's father always traveled with a pack of cards. Being gifted by nature with considerable manual dexterity, he usually managed to do well on these on race trains. <laughs> Ever played Persian monarch, monarchs, he asked, shuffling? I think not, said Adrian. Quite simple, said Lord Brangbolton. You just bet a quid or whatever it may be that you cut a higher card than the other fellow, and if you do, you win, and if you don't, you don't. <laughs> Adrian said it sounded a little like blind hooky. Oh, it is like blind hooky, said Lord Brangbolton. Very like blind hooky. In fact, if you can play blind hooky, you can play Persian monarchs. <laughs> By the time they alighted at Wesping Parva, Adrian was 20 pounds on the wrong side of the ledger. <clears throat> the fact, however, did not prey upon his mind. On the contrary, he was well satisfied with the progress of events. Elated with his winnings, the old earl had become positively cordial, and Adrian resolved to press his advantage home at the earliest opportunity. Arrived at Wesping Hall, accordingly, he did not delay. Shortly after the sounding of the dressing gong, he made his way to Lord Brangbolton's room and found him in his bath. Might I have a word with you, Lord Brangbolton, he said. You can do more than that, replied the other with marked amiability. You can help me find the soap. <laughs> have you lost the soap? Yes, had it a minute ago and now it's gone. <laughs> strange, said Adrian. Very strange, agreed Lord Brangbolton. Makes a fellow think a bit, that sort of thing happening. I own soap, too. Bought it with me. Adrian considered. Tell me exactly what occurred, he said, in your own words, and tell me everything, please, for one never knows when the smallest detail may not be important. His companion marshaled his thoughts. My name, he began, is Reginald Alexander Montacute James Bramfield Tregenis Shipton Bellinger, 5th Earl of Brangbolton. On the 16th of the present month, today, in fact, I journeyed to the house of my friend Sir Sutton Hartley Westbing Bart, uh, here, in short, with the purpose of spending the weekend there. Knowing that Sir Sutton likes to have his guests uh, sweet and fresh about the place, <laughs> I decided to take a bath before dinner. I unpacked my soap and in a short space of time had lathered myself thoroughly from the neck upwards. And then, just as I was about to begin on my right leg, what should I find but that the soap 
had disappeared. <laughs> Nasty shock it gave me, I can tell you. Adrian had listened to this narrative with closest attention. Certainly the problem appeared to present several points of interest. It looks like an inside job, he said thoughtfully. It could scarcely be the work of a gang. You would have noticed a gang. Just give me the facts briefly once again, if you please. Well, I was here in the bath, as it might be, and the soap was here between my hands, as it were. Next moment, it was gone. Are you sure you have omitted nothing? Lord Brangbolton reflected. Well, I was singing, of course. A tense look came into Adrian's face. Singing what? Oh, sunny boy. Adrian's face cleared. As I suspected, he said with satisfaction, precisely as I had supposed. I wonder if you are aware, Lord Brangbolton, that in the singing of that particular song, the muscles unconsciously contract as you come to the final boy. Thus, I still have you, sonny boy, you observe. It would be impossible for anyone rendering the number with the proper gusto not to force his hands together at this point, assuming that they were in anything like close juxtaposition, and if there were any slippery object between them, such as a piece of soap, it would inevitably shoot sharply upwards and fall. He scanned the room keenly. Outside the bath on the mat, as indeed, he concluded, picking up the missing object and restoring it to its proprietor, it did. <laughs> Lord Brangbolton gasped. Oh, dash my buttons, he cried. If that isn't the smartest bit of work I've seen in a month of Sundays. Elementary, said Adrian with a shrug. You ought to be a detective. Adrian took the cue. I am a detective, he said. My name is Mulliner, Adrian Mulliner, investigator. For an instant, the words did not appear to have made any impression. The aged peer continued to beam through the soap suds. Then suddenly his geniality vanished with an ominous swiftness. Mulliner? Did you say Mulliner? I did. You aren't by any chance the feller who loves your daughter, Millicent, with a fervor he cannot begin to express. Yes, Lord Brangbolton, I am. And I am hoping that I may receive your consent to the match. A hideous scowl had darkened the Earl's brow. His fingers, which were grasping a loofah, tightened convulsively. <laughs> oh, he said, you are, are you? You imagine, do you, that I propose to welcome a blighted footprint and cigar ash inspector into my family? It is your idea, is it, that I shall acquiesce in the union of my daughter to a dashed fellow who goes about the place on his hands and knees with a magnifying glass, picking up small objects and putting them carefully away in his pocketbook? I seem to see myself. Why, rather than permit Millicent to marry a bally detective, what is your objection to detectives? Never you mind what is my objection to detectives. Marry my daughter, indeed, like, like your infernal cheek. Why, you couldn't keep her in lipsticks. Adrian preserved his dignity. I admit that my services are not so amply remunerated as I could wish, but the firm hint at a rise next Christmas. Tcha! 
said Lord Brangbolton. Pshaw! If you're interested in my daughter's matrimonial arrangement, she is going as soon as she gets through with his as soon as he gets through with his Brahmayama gold mine flotation of his to marry my old friend Jasper Adelton. As for you, Mr. Mulliner, I have only two words to say to you. One is pop, and the other is off. <laughs> and do it now. Adrian sighed. He saw that it would be hopeless to endeavor to argue with the haughty old man in his present mood. So be it, Lord Brangbolton, he said quietly. And, affecting not to notice the nail brush which struck him smartly on the back of the head, he left the room. The food and drink provided for his guests by Sir Sutton Hartley Westing at the dinner, which began some half hour later, were all that the veriest gourmet could have desired. But Adrian gulped them down, scarcely tasting them. His whole attention was riveted on Sir Jasper Adelton, who sat immediately opposite him. And the more he examined Sir Jasper, the more revolting seemed the idea of his marrying the girl he loved. Of course, an ardent young fellow inspecting a man who is going to marry the girl he loves is always a stern critic. <laughs> In the peculiar circumstances, Adrian would no doubt have looked askance at a John Barrymore or a Ronald Coleman. But in the case of Sir Jasper, it must be admitted that he had quite reasonable grounds for his disapproval. In the first place, there was enough of the financier to make two financiers. <laughs> it was as if nature, planning a financier, had said to itself, we will do this thing well. <laughs> we will not skimp. With the result that, becoming too enthusiastic, it had overdone it. And then, in addition to being fat, he was also bald and goggle-eyed. <coughs> and if you overlooked his baldness and the goggly protuberance of his eyes, you could not get away from the fact that he was well advanced in years. Such a man felt Adrian would have been better employed in pricing burial lots in Kensal Green Cemetery than in forcing his unwelcome attentions on a sweet young girl like Millicent. And as soon as the meal was concluded, he, proceeded, he approached him with a cold abhorrence. A word with you, he said, and led him out onto the terrace. The OBE, as he followed him into the cool night air, seemed surprised and a little uneasy. He had noticed Adrian scrutinizing him closely across the dinner table, and if there is one thing a financier who has just put out a prospectus of a gold mine dislikes, it is to be scrutinized closely. <laughs> What do you want? he asked nervously. Adrian gave him a cold glance. Do you ever look in a mirror, Sir Jasper? <laughs> he asked curtly. Oh, frequently, replied the financier, puzzled. Do you ever weigh yourself? <laughs> Often. Do you ever listen while your tailor is toiling around you with the tape measure and calling out the score to his assistant? I do. <laughs> then, said Adrian, I, and I speak in the kindest spirit of disinterested friendship, you must have realized that you are an overfed old bohunkus. <laughs> and how you ever got the idea that you were a fit mate for Lady Millicent Shipton Bellinger frankly beats me. Surely it must have occurred to you what a priceless ass you will look, walking up the aisle with that young and lovely girl at your side. P. 
people will mistake you for an elderly uncle taking his niece to the zoo. <laughs> the OBE bridled. Ho, oh, he said. It is no use saying ho, said Adrian. You can't get out of it with any hose. When all the talk and argument have died away, the fact remains that millionaire though you be, you're a nasty-looking, fat, senile millionaire. If I were you, I should give the whole thing a miss. What do you want to get married for anyway? You are much happier as you are. Besides, think of the risks of a financier's life. Nice it would be for that sweet girl suddenly to get a wire from you telling her not to wait dinner for you as you had just started a seven-year stretch at Dartmoor. <laughs> An angry retort had been trembling on Sir Jasper's lips during the early portion of this speech, but at these concluding words it died unspoken. <laughs> he blenched visibly and stared at the speaker with undisguised apprehension. Well, what do you mean? he faltered. Never mind, said Adrian. <laughs> he had spoken, of course, purely at a venture, basing his remarks on the fact that nearly all OBEs who dabble in high finance go to prison sooner or later. <laughs> of Sir Jasper's actual affairs, he knew nothing. Hey, listen, said the finan financier. But Adrian did not hear him. I have mentioned that during dinner, preoccupied with his thoughts, he had bolted his food. Nature now took its toll. An acute spasm suddenly ran through him, and with a brief, brief ouch of pain, he doubled up and began to walk around in circles. <laughs> Sir Jasper clicked his tongue impatiently. This is no time for doing the Esther pom-pom dance, he said sharply. Tell me what you mean by that stuff you were talking about prison. Adrian had straightened himself. In the light of the moon which flooded the terrace with its silver beams, his clean-cut face was plainly visible. And with a shiver of apprehension, Sir Jasper saw that it wore a sardonic, sinister smile. <laughs> a smile which, it struck him, was virtually tantamount to a leer. I have spoken of the dislike financiers have for being scrutinized closely. Still more vehemently do they object to being leered at. <laughs> Sir Jasper reeled and was about to press his question when Adrian, still smiling, tottered off into the shadows and was lost to sight. The financier hurried into the smoking room where he knew there would be the materials for a stiff drink. A stiff drink was what he felt an imperious need of at the moment. He tried to tell himself that that smile could not really have had the inner meaning which he had read into it, but he was still quivering nervously as he entered the smoking room. As he opened the door, the sound of an angry voice smote his ears. He recognized it as Lord Brangbolton's. I call it dashed low, his lordship was saying in his high-pitched tenor. Sir Jasper gazed in bewilderment. His host, Sir Sutton Hartley Wesping, was standing backed against the wall and Lord Brangbolton, tapping him on the shirt front with a piston-like forefinger, was plainly in the process of giving him a thorough ticking off. What's the matter? asked the financier. I'll tell you what's the matter, cried Lord Brangbolton. This hound here has got down a detective to watch his guests. A dashed fellow named Molina. So much, he said bitterly, for our boasted English hospitality. Begad, he went on, still tapping the baronet round and about the diamond solitaire. <laughs> I call it thoroughly low. 
If I have a few of my society chums down to my place for a little visit, naturally I chain up the hairbrushes and, and tell the butler to count the spoons every night. But I'd never dream of going so far as to employ a beastly detective. One has one's code. No bless, I mean to say, oblige. What? What? But listen, pleaded the baron, I keep telling you, I had to invite the fellow here. I thought that if he had eaten my bread and salt, he would not uh, expose me. How do you mean, expose you? <laughs> Sir Sutton coughed. Oh, it was nothing, the, the merest trifle. Still, the man undoubtedly could have made things unpleasant for me if he had wished. So when I looked up and saw him smiling at me in that frightful, sardonic, knowing way, Sir Jasper Addleton uttered a sharp cry. Smiling, he gulped. Did you say smiling? <laughs> smiling, said the baron at his right. It was one of those smiles that seemed to go clean through you and light up all your inner being as if with a searchlight. Sir Jasper gulped again. Is this feller, this smiler feller, is he a tall, dark, thin chap? That's right. He sat opposite you at dinner. And he's a detective? He is, said Lord Brangbolton, as shrewd and smart a detective, he added grudgingly, as I ever met in my life. The way he found that soap. <laughs> Fella struck me as having some sort of sixth sense, if you know what I mean. Dash and curse him. I hate detectives, he said with a shiver. They give me the creeps. <laughs> this one wants to marry my daughter, Millicent, of all the dash nerve. See you later, said Sir Jasper, and with a single bound, he was out of the room and on his way to the terrace. There was, he felt, no time to waste. His florid face, as he galloped along, was twisted and ashen. With one hand, he drew from his inside pocket a checkbook, with the other from his trouser pocket a fountain pen. Adrian, when the financier found him, was feeling a good deal better. He blessed the day when he had sought the specialist's advice. There was no doubt about it, he felt the man knew his business. Smiling might make the cheek muscles ache, but it undoubtedly did the trick as regards the pangs of his dyspepsia. For a brief while before Sir Jasper burst onto the terrace, waving fountain pen and checkbook, Adrian had been giving his face a rest. <clears throat> but now, the pain in his cheeks having abated, he deemed it prudent to resume the treatment. And so it came about that the financier, hurrying towards him, was met with a smile so meaning, so suggestive, that he stopped in his tracks and for a moment could not speak. Oh, there you are, he said, recovering at length. Might I have a word with you in private, uh, Mr. Molliner? Adrian nodded, beaming. The financier took him by the coat sleeve and led him across the terrace. He was breathing a little stertorously. I've been thinking things over, he said, and I've come to the conclusion that you were right. Right, said Adrian. Uh, about me marrying, it wouldn't do. <laughs> no? Oh, positively not. Absurd. I can see it now. I'm too old for the girl. Yes. Uh, too bald. Exactly. <laughs> and too fat. Much too fat, agreed Adrian. This sudden change of heart puzzled him, but nonetheless the other's words were as music to his ears. Every syllable the OBE had spoken had caused his heart to leap within him like a young lamb in springtime, and his mouth curved in a smile. 
Sir Jasper, seeing it, shied like a frightened horse. He patted Adrian's arm feverishly. So uh, I have decided, he said, to take your advice, and uh, if I recall your expression, give the thing a, a miss. You couldn't do better, said Adrian heartily. Now, if I were to remain in England in these circumstances, proceeded Sir Jasper, there might be unpleasantness. So I propose to go quietly away at once to some remote spot, say, South America. <laughs> Don't you think I am right? He asked, giving the checkbook a twitch. Yeah. Quite right, said Adrian. You won't mention this little plan of mine to anyone? You will keep it as just a secret between ourselves? If, for, for instance, any of your cronies at Scotland Yard should express curiosity as to my whereabouts, you will plead ignorance? Oh, certainly. Capital, said Sir J Jasper, relieved. And there is one other thing. I gather from Brangbolton that you are anxious to marry Lady Millicent yourself. And as by the time of the wedding I shall doubtless be in, well, uh, Kayao is a spot that suggests itself offhand. <laughs> I would like to give you my little wedding present now. He scribbled hastily in his checkbook, tore out a page, and handed it to Adrian. Remember, he said, not a word to anyone. Quite, said Adrian. He watched the financier disappear in the direction of the garage, regretting that he could have misjudged a man who so evidently had so much good in him. Presently, the sound of a motor engine announced that the other was on his way feeling that one obstacle at least between himself and his happiness had been removed, Adrian strolled indoors to see what the rest of the party were doing. It was a quiet, peaceful scene that met his eyes as he wandered into the library. Overruling the request of some of the members of the company for a rubber of bridge, Lord Brangbolton had gathered them together at a small table and was initiating them into his favorite game of Persian monarchs. It's perfectly simple, Dashit, he was saying. You just take the pack and cut. You bet, let us say ten pounds, that you will cut a higher card than the fellow you're cutting against. And if you do, you win, Dashit. And if you don't, uh, the other dashed fellow wins. Why, uh, clear, what? <laughs> Somebody said that it sounded a little bit like blind hooky. <laughs> oh, it is like blind hooky, said Lord Brangbolton. Very like blind hooky. In fact, if you can play blind hooky, you can play Persian monarchs. They settled down to their game, and Adrian wandered about the room, endeavoring to still the riot of emotion which his recent interview with Sir Jasper Adelton had aroused in his bosom. All that remained for him to do now, he reflected, was by some means or other to remove the existing prejudice against him from Lord Brangbolton's mind. It would not be easy, of course. To begin with, there was the matter of his straitened means. He suddenly remembered that he had not yet looked at the check which the financier had handed him. He pulled it out of his pocket, and, having glanced at it, Adrian Mulliner swayed like a poplar in a storm. <laughs> Just what he had expected he could not have said. A fiver, possibly, at the most, a tenor. Just a trifling gift he had imagined, with which to buy himself a cigarette lighter, a fish slice, or an egg boiler. <laughs> the check was for a hundred thousand pounds. <laughs> so great was the shock that, as Adrian caught sight of himself in the mirror opposite to which he was standing, he scarcely recognized the face in the glass. He seemed to be seeing it through a mist. Then the mist cleared, and he saw not only his own face clearly, but also that of Lord Brangbolton, 
who was in the act of cutting against his left-hand neighbor, Lord Knubble of Knop. <laughs> and as he thought of the effect this sudden accession of wealth must surely have on the father of the girl he loved, there came into Adrian's face a sudden swift smile. <laughs> and simultaneously from behind him, he heard a gasping exclamation. And looking in the mirror, he met Lord Brangbolton's eyes. <laughs> Always a little prominent. They were now almost prawn-like in their convexity. <laughs> Lord Knubble of Knop had produced a banknote from his pocket and was pushing it along the table. Another ace, he explained. Well, I'm dashed. Lord Brangbolton had risen from his chair. Excuse me, he said in a strange croaking voice. I just want to have a little chat with my friend, my dear old friend Mulliner here. Uh, might I have a word in private with you, Mr. Mulliner? There was silence between the two men until they had reached a corner of the terrace, out of earshot of the library window. Then Lord Brangbolton cleared his throat. Uh, Mulliner, he began, or rather, what is your uh, Christian name? Adrian. Adrian, my dear fellow, said Lord Brangbolton, my memory is not what it should be, but I seem to have a distinct recollection that when I was in my bath before dinner, you said something about wanting to marry my daughter, Millicent. I did, replied Adrian, and if your objections to me as a suitor were mainly financial, let me assure you that since we last spoke, I have become a wealthy man. I never had any objections to you, Adrian, financial or otherwise, <laughs> said Lord Brangbolton, patting his arm affectionately. I have always felt that the man my daughter married ought to be a fine, warm-hearted young fellow like you. For you, Adrian, he proceeded, are essentially warm-hearted. You would never dream of distressing a father-in-law by mentioning any... Uh, any little, uh, uh, well, in short, I saw from your smile in there that you had noticed that I was introducing into that game of a blind hooky, or rather, a Persian monarchs, a certain little, uh, shall I say, variations designed to give it additional interest and excitement, and I feel sure that you would scorn to embarrass a father-in-law by a... Oh, well, to cut a long story short, my, short, my boy, take Millicent and with her a father's blessings. <laughs> he extended his hand. Adrian clasped it warmly. I am the happiest man in the world, he said, smiling. Lord Brangbolton winced. <laughs> Do you mind not doing that? I only smiled, said Adrian. I know, said Lord Brangbolton. <laughs> Little remains to be told. Adrian and Millicent were married three months later at a fashionable West End church. All society was there. The presents were both numerous and costly, and the bride looked charming. The service was conducted by the very reverend, the Dean of Bittlesham. It was in the vestry afterwards as Adrian looked at Millicent and seemed to realize for the first time that all his troubles were over and that this lovely girl was indeed his for better or worse, that a full sense of his happiness swept over the young man. All through the ceremony he had been grave 
as befitted a man at the most serious point in his career. But now, fizzing as if with some spiritual yeast, he clasped her in his hands, and over her shoulder his face broke into a quick smile. He found himself looking into the eyes of the Dean of Bittleton. <laughs> a moment later, he felt a tap on his arm. Uh, might I have a word with you in private, Mr. Mulliner? said the Dean in a low voice.